Welcome to episode 509 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature part two of a conversation I've broken down into three parts. I had with time experimenter, artist David McDermott. He is part of the artistic collaboration McDermott and McGough. We've had Peter on several times. And now, David, talking with us from a friend's place in Dublin, Ireland. We discuss his millions, Julian Schnabel, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol, Staying Out of Depression, New York Rocker Magazine, Johnny Rotten, Fab Five Freddy, A Society of Casualness, Marijuana Dreams, among other things. Part two of a conversation with David McDermott. We also have an EWSA titled February and an essay titled Mr. Kim written by Brian Doyle, published in the January 2023 issue of The Sun magazine. We have a poem called Origin, and of course, all of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 509 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Sorry, the number is wrong. 
someone knows the loving I could be giving, yet I keep on living all by myself. February. I am a non-profit impresario. I am a union man. I do what I can, and seemingly what I cannot, trying to be free, riding the wind while standing here through thick and thin, wondering if I do what I should, wondering still whether I am any good. This white beard keeps growing down and out toward the ground like a sprout, into the warm arms of this night's waxing moonlight, full very soon. And each day now the sun shines longer, way ahead into June. Snow clouds crisp, cold and dry, pure white, from and of the sky, blow in patterns I do not totally understand though I know and love it because they do not answer to the man. In this picture, so tried and true, if only when spring blossoms all anew, we walk on stage and dance the streets from hometown alleyways through big city avenues. I saw a man in drag on a rainy night some years ago, rushing from the state building parking lot. His raincoat was long, beige, with light brown buttons. His babushka was translucent light green, with embroidered pink-blue umbrellas. Where was he going, I wonder? What is the matter, little Bo Peep? I have been careless and lost my sheep. Say, have you seen them, Jack and Jill, during your journey up the hill? They're not on the hilltop, but in the wood. They may have met with Red Riding Hood. Don't cry, Bo Peep, don't cry. Oh, 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 oh,
share installment two of three of a conversation we had with time experimenter and artist David McDermott from a place in Dublin, Ireland. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hello, this is David McDermott. Uh, so several articles I had read uh, when I was doing some research uh, said that uh, you you were made millions with your. Uh, Is that why you're interviewing me to find out about my millions? <laughs> no, I'm an I'm an idiot with money myself. Money doesn't mean much to me as long as I have enough to take care of my needs. I'm fine, but it's it does indicate, uh, I guess, in our Western mind, a level of success. You know, uh, you were very successful uh, in that in that regard, in, in those terms. Um, and also, I think we can measure your success by the folks that wanted to hang out with you. People like Andy Warhol, for example, right? Basquiat, all these brilliant thinkers, innovators, great artists. Um, so I'm fascinated by that. That's why I'm asking, how, how was that? How did that happen? What, what, what do you remember of it? Well, I would say that Julian Schnabel would have been extremely important in lifting me up out of the poverty of the Lower East Side. And uh, he, he gave me huge quantities of paint, and he was the example. And we thought, he knows this business and you know what we followed what he had to say um when you say we when you say we do you mean you and peter yes and what did he have to say in your recollection you know you followed it what was it well he said something, but it has a curse word in it. That's but, all right. That's all right. You could say it. I'll, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. All right. He just said, you have to pick it up a little bit. In other words, things can't be too perfect. That's going to look a little messy. And that, would, that was one of his advices. And uh, did you did you uh, do that then successfully? Yeah, sure, we did whatever Julian would say. We we believed every. I thought of Julian as the Godfather, and one time I needed a large sum of money. Um, it was a, an 
an art world uh, art dealer debt that had to be fulfilled. And I went to him. I, I went down on, on my knees and I kissed his hand and I asked for the money and he absolutely gave it to me. And then about three years later, I was in a position to pay the money back. And I went to see him and he didn't want the money back. He, he took all the photographs that we had given him um, as collateral. But um, I was very much involved with Julian's family. I mean, I knew all his early children when they, you know, Vito Schnabel was a baby. And, um, but, um, and he, he was looking out for Andy Warhol. He wanted Andy Warhol to have friends. And, um, you know, he, and he brought us together and, and I have a lot of Andy Warhol stories, but one thing I should tell you is that at my 35th birthday, which was at um, Julian Schnabel's studio. Uh, his, um, I was with Andy Warhol and Jacqueline Schnabel, and we were talking and looking down into the studio from a balcony. And then Julian showed up, and he told us the story about Jean Michel that Jean Michel had just left, and he told us he had urinated in the corridor. And he thought, why would he do that? And then we were all saying, yeah, why would he do that? What, what? We didn't understand at all. But how about that? That's a great story, isn't it? And that's in Julian's movie. Basquiat urinating in the corridor. <clears throat> yeah. Down the flight of stairs, Julian saw him do that. And um, yeah, I remember Andy Warhol, you know, we all couldn't understand why he would do that. You know, Andy Warhol is an enigma to most of us. Uh, you know, what does, that, what does enigma mean? Uh, is it the unexplainable. Yeah, yeah. Based to me, that's what I would say. It's it's hard to 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 explain. That's a good way of putting it. You were associates, perhaps friends, and I mean, what sense did you get from Mr. Warhol? What you know? What what do you recall of his his person? His essence. Well, I wouldn't consider myself Andy Warhol's friend. I would consider myself an acquaintance. I mean, to me, a friend is a substitute family member, a good family member. And a friend is someone you can go to to borrow money, to stay at their house um, because you don't have a place to live. And third, you can call them up from anywhere in the world and say, I'm in this prison in Zimbabwe. Get me out of here. And they will. I you agree. Know, that's a friend. You're right. The word friend is overused. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just people you, you can invite to parties. But I have I have wonderful stories about Andy Warhol. I mean, I couldn't watch that documentary that they made on the television. My manager wanted me to watch it. And I watched the first one and into the second one. But then I said, I can't watch it. It was too upsetting. You know, it was too depressing. And I was speaking to Bob Colicello about it. And he said that those filmmakers, they had an agenda and they wanted it. They wanted to show that Andy was just 
deprived homosexual and that he was the way he was because he couldn't be who he really wanted to be. That's so untrue. And that's just not true at all. He, what was he then, as far as you could recall or knew? Well, he was an eccentric artist that had carefully examined the art world and had figured out a way to outsmart them. That's what he was about. And, you know, I read his books and then... Um, I used some of those techniques on him when I met him, and they completely worked. <laughs> you know, I just used some. I mean, they're very funny, some of the things I did. But um, Feel free to share. Well, um, let's see. I went to this Japanese restaurant. They're all sitting on the floor. And Andy's companion, uh, he might have been Chinese, and he said, um, David and Peter are having their exhibition next week at this particular gallery. And Andy was like, oh, yes. Uh, what are you painting? What, what, what is it going to be about? And I said, well, we have these... Um, Penis paintings. And he said, penis paintings? And I said, yes, well, you know, people have always wanted their faces painted. But, you know, penises are as individual as faces. So we're doing portraits of penises. And he says, really, I'd like to, to, to see those. And I said, well, our opening is at 6 o'clock on Thursday. And I said, but, you know, you should come early because we have the penis portraits in the back room. And, um, you know, I, I won't be able to show them to you once everybody starts arriving. So Andy Warhol comes at 5.30 to see the see these penis portraits. And he comes into the show. And then, and then he says, can we see the penis portraits now? And I said, we can't see them because um, it's starting to get a little crowded. But we'll... we'll We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll, we'll look at them a little later. So then in the middle of the show, he comes up to me and he says, when we, can we see the penis portraits? I said, listen, everybody's going to be leaving soon. And then we're going to see them. And then um, it was the end. And, you know, the lights are flicking. And Andy comes up to me and he says, um, um, what about the penis portraits? And I said, listen, Andy, it's too late now. We have to go to the dinner. Um, but you can come tomorrow and I'll show them to you. But there weren't any penis portraits. I just made it up. Because <laughs> I knew from reading this book that that's what would interest him. I did a lot of things like that. Did he get upset with you? No. No, because he knew that I was, you know, playing by his rules. You know, I was doing exactly what he did. That's wonderful. We're talking to David McDermott here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, time experimenter. I, I said artist earlier. He says he's not an artist. Um, I find that interesting. Uh, so predominantly, you would consider yourself a time experimenter. Any Anything else you would feel comfortable with tagged onto your name? Well, 
you know, I believe that in order to have a tassel, you need a gift shop. But you can't have a gift shop without a castle. And you can't have a castle without a gift shop. And that's basically what my relationship with my partner for 40 years was about. I mean, I worked on time experimentation. You're talking about Peter McGough, your partner. Yes, but I don't want to get involved in that conversation. But pretty much, I've always seen the buying and selling and making of paintings as a way to raise money for time experiments. I understand. And and you're still working on these experiments now in Ireland. You left New York City. Absolutely. I know so much about the past, so much about the past. Going how far back? Going how far back, would you say? Well, my real knowledge is the early 20th century, but I'm quite familiar in the late 19th century, and I've tried to be strong in my knowledge in the early 19th century. And it's better than it used to be. But, um, and I have some knowledge of the 18th century also. But I love the past, and I don't see why other people don't love it too. They Pretty much these parents feel that they've accomplished something if they teach their children how to negotiate the present Right. Exactly. I think that's what we're all trying to do is negotiate the present. But there's more more to it than the present. Well, you know, scientifically, there isn't any present. Scientifically, there is the past. You know that because you're hearing what I'm saying, a half second delay. So this is the past. We're experiencing the past. That's like looking at the stars. I love, I love the past. And the past has given me something to love for my whole life. And the issue is every person's job, no matter who they are, their job is to be in a good state of mind, to be in a good spirit. And the way that you remain in a good spirit is you need 20 things you like to do. Not two things, not football and and video games. You need 20 things you like to do. You need to be able to walk the dog. You need to like trees. You you need 20 things. And that's how you 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 stay out of depression. And you can't let yourself go into depression. You have to climb yourself back up. And elation is at the top of it. The psychiatrists, they don't want people being elated. But, you know, that's where we need to be, is up there at the top. Yes, I agree. It's hard sometimes, though. It it truly is. Uh, You know, you you mentioned 20 things you like to do. Yeah, say reading. I mean, I would just pull off these people that are in the streets um, I just put them in a concentration camp and forced them to learn how to read. I mean, reading is everything. I read my mother's um, 
reading list when I was in high school. So I was reading Edith Morton and Henry James and um, oh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Main Street, Babbitt. And I was just reading all these early, Edna Ferber. Nobody talks about her anymore. And she was so successful. Anyway, I read all of that when I was in high school. And um, I'm always reading. I've read Gone with the Wind three times. I've read War and Peace three times. I'm always reading. How about music? If you're not reading, you're basically talking as if you've been informed by a cartoon. You know, these people, they're all talking about contemporary politics right now. Mm -hmm. They don't know anything about it. They only know what's been blurred at them on the television. They don't know the history. You need to read. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, music, I know, is important to you as well, right? Well, I have a a new theory about music. Um, It just came to me this last month. Because all my life I was involved with listening to jazz, um, early jazz from the 20s to about 1935. I don't like it after that. But um, I've come to the theory that it's basically the rock and roll people with their offshoots of disco, reggae, and rap. And they have glorified jazz and made jazz to be their antecedent, that that's where they're coming out of. But actually, I just realized it, that the popular music of the early 20th century was very much influenced by classical music. I mean, it was directly connected with Bach and Beethoven and Mm -hmm. Wagner. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what I'm interested in now is all this music that had been, that was influenced by classical music. I know this is a very shocking thing to say, but. Not really. It makes sense to me. Nobody plays it. Nobody plays it. And all the, all the old music has been bought up by these um, corporations and they won't let anybody play it. And if you want to put an old song in a movie, I mean, you have to pay them a fortune. Right. And yet that's why you hear all this junk constantly being, um, I don't like rock and roll roll. I mean, I'd I'd confiscate all the guitars because, (laughs) um, you know, I think that these people who call themselves musicians and they're playing a guitar, I mean, it's just just so banal. Entrap it. When you were were back in New York in the the 70s in particular, did you make the the CBGB scene and uh, Maxis, Kansas City and stuff? I had to. What'd you think of it? was the society. Well, I mean, all my friends were involved. I mean, my friends actually produced the the newspaper, the magazine. It was a newspaper of that time. It was called the New York Rocker. Did you ever hear of that? The New York Rocker? No, I haven't. Well, there were two... I've heard of two, punk. Two, right, that was the other one. But the whole word punk, that comes from England. 
But, you know, I was in England when Johnny Rotten um, said bollocks to the Queen. And then I had to return in January. Meanwhile, he had gone to San Francisco, broken up with his band, and he showed up in New York. And on the day I arrived back in um, Manhattan, my friend said, we're going to a party with Johnny Rotten. And I went to that party and I went up to Johnny Rotten and I said, thank you for inspiring the youth. He said, the what? And I said, thank you for inspiring the youth. And then he said, bullocks to me. And he walked out of the room. And as soon as he walked out of the room, everybody left the room. And my friend and I, we, we were there alone. <laughs> but, um, and then we went into the next room and so forth. And that was the end of the party when Johnny Rotten left. But Johnny Rotten was, he was terrified of that New York society because it was the real thing. I mean, the London version was a you know, a, I don't know, a comic strip version of what was going on in New York. I mean, those people in New York, they were very serious. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I do. You, you know, know that? I do. I've had... No, but they were, they were um, I mean, that Robert Maplethorpe, I mean, he was going in places with his camera and photographing what nobody had ever seen before. And that's the problem with these exhibitions. I went to one in London of Andy Warhol photographs. And when they show those photographs, they need to, before you go in, you need to see the photographs of the normal people of that time. Because all of those people were exceptional, but now they just look like contemporary people. Do you understand what I just said? It's not contextualized. Well, yes, because these contemporary people, they look at the photographs of these fashionable people from the 1970s and 80s and then they you know they just look like people today right but if you look if you saw what the people of that time looked like i mean you know when you walked around the streets of new york there were all the normal people and um you know these different ethnic groups um we weren't interested in them you know, they, of course, and most of the people in New York lived in the suburbs. And they just come in every day and then they'd leave. And we had our own society in that empty city. Which part were you living in Manhattan? Was it the, the, the village, right? Well, it was the Lower East Side um, but um, I started out on the Upper West Side when that was a very different place. But by 1976, I'd moved downtown. And I, I know what and you're I, saying about the I, photographs. I, I almost rented an apartment. It was $25 a month. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> now, the toilet was next to the stove. And you could see light from the basement between the floorboards and smell the oil fumes coming up. I didn't take that apartment, but it's $25 a month. Yeah, try to get that now, right? Um, so you were mentioning before how today when you look at photographs of the iconic uh, characters, individuals from the 70s, they look like normal, quote-unquote, people today because I think you were getting to the point that that sort of counterculture became the mainstream now. Yes, and that's a very important fact 
when you talk about modernism because, you know, modernism was fine when it was juxtaposing the past. But, you know, you, you need something to juxtapose. And um, we can't be having this... Um, society of casualness you know everywhere it's just um abysmal what do you mean by society of casualness well i I was trying to think of a name to call the contemporary way that people are going about i mean i don't know do you ever when you're on the subway do you ever think what was the subway like in 1947 i mean all you have to do is watch the old movies to see how people were um, you know, contemporary people, they don't even try. They're just, they're just completely casual in everything they do. Um, why do you think that is? I, I hear you. I do. I think because they're slops. That's what, what I think. I think, I think they're children and they're not, um, taking on any responsibility. Uh, I think they... They don't care, and that they believe that by not caring. Want to hear a funny joke? Yeah. Um, I spent all day with Fred Breathwaite, who became Fab Five Freddy. Oh, Fab Five Freddy, yeah. And we, he was very interested in history, and we spent all that, I mean, hours, maybe three or four hours talking about history. And then he went to Jean-Michel and he said, oh, I was just, you know, with Dave McDermott um, talking about history all day. And Jean-Michel said, don't trust that David McDermott. He wants to bring back old slave days. Oh, gosh. How did it... Isn't that a great line? <laughs> that is a great line. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's a good sort of insight coming from two uh, men of color. You know, to African American, or uh, I think uh, Jean Michel was Haitian, right? Haitian American. Um, they have a different experience than white guys like us. So the history history is not so kind in in their recollection as to maybe the modern day, given the way their their ancestors were treated. How do you respond to that when you want to go back into history? You bring up a good point. Well, Glenn O'Brien who was the first uh, editor of Interview Magazine when he was a young fellow. He was called Andy's Boy. And he made the movie Downtown 81 about Jean Michel. And it was the story of this black kid that comes into New York, and in one day he meets everybody in the downtown society. That's what the movie is about. And by the end of the movie, he's a success. You know, he has his art exhibition. And that's pretty what, much what happened. I mean, Glenn O'Brien is really responsible for promoting um, Jean-Michel. And I met, I met Jean-Michel in uh, Glenn O'Brien's apartment on 8th Street. And I remember he gave me this marijuana. Because I'd always been I, I always thought that when you smoked marijuana, that that was a higher state of being. 
And I was always trying to find a handle because I thought it must be something in the mind and I should be able to think myself into that state. And um, anyway, it was with the marijuana he gave me that I was finally able to get this handle that I could remember and always click into it um, to be in the marijuana high, which I believed was the highest state of being. And I went on for two years constantly in the marijuana high without smoking it. And so Jean-Michel, that's, that was, you know, but then I got into such trouble, I decided I had to go back to my original way of thinking, which is what they taught me in grammar school. One plus one equals two in A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And that's pretty much the way I think now. I mean, I don't go into that marijuana high state. But you're a, you were able to access it without actually smoking marijuana. Once you find it, it's, I, I understand what you're saying. It's there in your mind. Why can't did you? you did, did you do it too? Marijuana? No. Did you get? Did you? Can you go into that state without um, using the the smoking? I think so. Yeah, and I agree with you. If you can access it, it's your mind. So. If marijuana is the first time you're able to access it, it introduces you to that part of your mind. You could do it without the marijuana, too. I agree with you. And yes, I, I think I have. Yeah, oftentimes. Even when I was a child, you know, it reminds me oftentimes of how I looked at the world and how I felt when I was a child, uh, you know, being high as an adult. So you just kind of recollect, and this goes along with what you were saying earlier about history. You recollect your own past history when you're more innocent, maybe more open less less uh, influenced by all the stuff being thrown at you as a child. Sometimes getting high, I think, helps you to go back there. So, But you don't need it, I agree, to go back there. You just have to make an attempt to go back there on your own. Did that make any well, sense to you? Well, old people, their advantage is they have memories going back into the, into the decades. I mean, I actually have memories of the early 1950s. Now, maybe they're provoked by old photographs, but um, there's so much material in my memory to make dreams of when I go to sleep. So my dreams are very rich. I mean, I would sleep well every night. And I have amazing dreams. Nobody wants to hear about other people's dreams, but... I find them fascinating. <clears throat> I do. I, you know, the, that subconscious, that, you know, uh, alter, alternative uh, sort of uh, thinking when you go to sleep is, is amazing. Oftentimes, I don't remember my dreams, but when I do... I have a better day, I think, unless they were nightmares. I have a better day uh, once I wake when I remember my dreams. And do you have nightmares? Well, sometimes I think I do. So, you know, not, not normally, but sometimes. Sometimes I do. You know, lately, my, my, I told James this while we were arranging this interview. Just several weeks ago, my father passed. And, I, you know, I've had a couple of troubling dreams since then because of um, I guess things that were never tended to between he and, and myself and now they never will be, you know, and I, 
I think that's spurred some troubling dreams. Um, I don't know if you have anything similar you can relate to in that regard, but but most of the time my dreams are pretty good. Well, the best way to memorialize someone who's died is to become them. And so if they made apple pie, you then learn how to make apple pie and you make apple pie. And whenever you're making apple pie, you're them. I like That's that. the only way you can really mourn somebody is like by becoming that. them. For a moment or f not for not totally forever because you want to retain your own identity, right? Well, it depends upon how boring you are. <laughs> <laughs> and that was part two of a three-part series, all coming from one conversation I had a few weeks back with artist and time experimenter David McDermott. Be sure to tune in to Troubadours and Rock On Tours in the upcoming weeks for part three.
And now an essay titled Mr. Kim by Brian Doyle, published in the January 2023 issue of The Sun magazine. Mr. Kim is abrupt. He is brief. He is short. He is terse. He is direct. He does not beat around the bush. He brooks no nonsense. He is from elsewhere. He does not say from where. He does not like that question. He says elsewhere when you ask that question. He may or may not be married. He does not answer this question either and generally responds by asking if you are married. And when you stammeringly say yes, he says, see, unnerving question, isn't it? Don't like people asking questions about your private life, do you? Me, neither. Yet, Mr. Kim is kind. He is generous. He gives away loaves of bread from his bakery without fanfare. He gives free cookies to children if they ask politely and say thank you. He once gave me a pound of butter. He once gave a man a sack of sugar so heavy that he staggered when he carried it out the door. He posts the athletic schedules of high school sports teams in his window. He pins up posters about lost dogs. He once pinned up a poster about a lost parrot, even though he considered the chances of finding the bird slim to none. He does not pin up posters about lost cats because, he says privately, who cares? But Mr. Kim is gruff. He is stern. Mr. Kim once threatened a prospective thief with a baker's peel, which is a large tool that you use to slide bread in and out of the oven. It has a wooden handle and a steel head bigger than an axe. And when Mr. Kim brandished it at the thief, the boy ran out of the shop so fast he hit his head against the door, which must have hurt like hell, but who cares? Yet, when the police actually caught the thief two blocks away, Mr. Kim refused to press charges because the boy did not actually steal anything, so what could he complain about? Nor did Mr. Kim fire the ancient janitor who came with the shop when he bought it years ago even though it was apparent that the janitor did not actually janitate, as Mr. Kim said, but rather slept in the corner behind the stove after making a show of washing the mountain of pots and pans. Mr. Kim did the janitating himself until the janitor grew so stiff and ill that he had to become a ward of the city, at which point Mr. Kim hired a boy who may or may not be his nephew or grandson. But Mr. Kim shouts at public meetings about zoning and redevelopment. He insults and excoriates members of the city council and the tax commission. He gesticulates and offers vulgar remarks about people whose parked cars block the alley next to his shop, making deliveries impossible. He refuses to speak to the polite women who run the nail salon next door because at some point in the past they did not join him in a petition the purpose of which is now totally lost to history, but not to Mr. Kim's memory. Yet, Mr. Kim many times has shoveled the snow away from the curb in front of their salon so that their customers could park and walk to their door. He filled their shop with twelve small candlelit cakes one evening when the mother of one of the women died. After a terrific thunderstorm knocked out power on the whole block for three days and the salon's fuse box was fried, 
he quietly paid for it to be repaired at the same time his box was fixed. But when one of the two women came into the bakery to thank him for his kindness, he denied that he had paid for the box and was gruff and stern and terse and said, If you are not here to buy anything, then you are obstructing customers. Thank you. Goodbye. And he smiled tightly when she stormed out of the store. Why do you do that? I asked him one time, even though I knew that my questions were not welcome. Do what? He said. What are you talking about? Are you here to buy something or ask questions? This is not the newspaper office or the library help desk. If you are not here to buy something, then you are obstructing customers. Thank you. Goodbye. I bit my tongue, and I bought a loaf of his superb garlic bread and cradled the redolent, crinkling bag in my arms like an infant and drove home with that exquisite scent filling the car like a song. And when I opened the bag with a flourish to show my family the glorious addition to dinner, out fell three cookies, one for each of my children, beautifully wrapped in brown paper, so thin that when you held it up to the light you could see right through it, impenetrable though it seemed.
Origin Pen without a top A pouch of tobacco Flat Fancy plate with a smooth silver circumference Lustful urges and wistful memories Candle light painting on an easel in front of a fireplace In a stone house my father built with his father and mother and sister. Chickens, pigs, roosters, goats, donkeys, vegetables, fruit, cheese, milk, spring water, olive oil, and wine. Earnest, alive, sublime, I can remember. Episode 509 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, David McDermott. 
You heard part two of a conversation we broke down into three parts. Part three of three will be featured in episode 511 in a couple of weeks. Make sure you tune in. I'd also like to thank The Sun Magazine and writer Brian Doyle, as well as these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Eileen Stanley, Babes in Toyland, Sir Nathaniel Shilkret, the Clicquot Club Eskimos, Irene Bardoni, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best to enjoy this time. Take care of yourself.